The Cast Iron Canvasser by A. B. Banjo Patterson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Son of the Exiles. The Cast Iron Canvasser. The firm of Sloper and Dodge, publishers and printers, was in great distress. These two enterprising individuals had worked up an enormous business in time payment books, which they sold all over Australia by means of canvases. They had put all the money they had into the business, and now, just when everything was in thorough working order, the public had revolted against them. Their canvases were molested by the country folk in diverse strange bush ways. One was made drunk, and then a two-horse harrow was run over him. Another was decoyed into the ranges on pretense of being shown a gold mine, and his guide galloped away and left him to freeze all night in the bush. In mining localities, the inhabitants were called together by beating a camp oven lid with a pick, and the canvasser was given ten minutes in which to get out of the town alive. If he disregarded the hint, he would, as likely as not, fall accidentally down a disused shaft. The people of one district applied to their MP to have canvases brought under the Noxious Animals Act, and demanded that a reward should be offered for their scalps. Reports appeared in the country press about strange, gigantic birds that appeared at remote selections and frightened the inhabitants to death. These were Sloper and Dodge's sober and reliable agents, wearing neat, close-fitting suits of tar and feathers. In fact, it was altogether too hot for the canvassers, and they came in from north and west and south, crippled and disheartened, to tender their resignations. To make matters worse, Sloper and Dodge had just got out a large atlas of Australasia, and if they couldn't sell it, ruin stared them in the face and how could they sell it without canvases? The members of the firm sat in their private office. Sloper was a long, sanctimonious individual, very religious and very bald. Dodge was a little fat American, with bristly black hair and beard and quick beady eyes. He was eternally smoking a reeking black pipe and puffing the smoke through his nose in great whiffs, like a locomotive on a steep grade. Anybody walking into one of those whiffs was liable to get paralysis. Just as things were at their very blackest, something had turned up that promised to relieve all their difficulties. An inventor had offered to supply them with a patent cast-iron canvasser, a figure which, he said, when wound up, would walk, talk, collect orders, and stand any amount of ill-usage and wear and tear. If this could indeed be done, they were saved. They had made an appointment with the genius, but he was half an hour late, and the partners were steeped in gloom. They had begun to despair of his appearing at all, when a cab rattled up to the door. Sloper and Dodge rushed unanimously to the window. A young man, very badly dressed, stepped out of the cab, holding over his shoulder what looked like the upper half of a man's body. In his disengaged hand, he held a pair of human legs with boots and trousers on. Thus burdened, he turned to ask his fare, but the cabman gave a yell of terror, whipped up his horse, and disappeared at a hand gallop. And a woman, who happened to be going by, ran down the street, howling that Jack the Ripper had come to town. 
The man bolted in at the door and toiled up the dark stairs, tramping heavily, the legs and feet, which he dragged after him, making an unearthly clatter. He came in and put his burden down on the sofa. "'Hey, uh, gents,' he said, "'where's your canvasser?' Sloper and Dodger recoiled in horror. The upper part of the man had a waxy face, dull fishy eyes, and dark hair. He lounged on the sofa like a corpse at ease, while his legs and feet stood by, leaning stiffly against the wall. The partners gazed at him for a while in silence. "'Fix him together, for God's sake,' said Dodge. "'He looks awful.' The genius grinned and fixed the legs on. "'Now he looks better,' said Dodge, poking about the figure. "'Looks as much like life as most.' "'Ah, would you, you brute!' he exclaimed, springing back in alarm, for the figure had made a violent LeBlanche swing at him. "'That's all right,' said the inventor. "'It's no good having his face knocked about, you know. "'Lots of trouble to make that face.' His head and body are full of springs, and if anyone hits him in the face, or in the pit of the stomach, favourite places to hit canvas is the pit of the stomach, it sets a strong spring in motion, and he fetches his right hand round with a swipe that'll knock him into the middle of next week. It's an awful hit. Griffo couldn't dodge it, and Slavin couldn't stand up against it. No fear of any man hitting him twice. And he's dog-proof, too. His legs are padded with tar and oakum, and if a dog bites a bit out of him, it'll take that dog weeks to pick his teeth clean. Never bite anyone again, that dog won't. And he'll talk, talk, talk like a suffragist gone mad. His phonograph can be charged for a hundred thousand words, and all you've got to do is speak into it what you want him to say, and he'll say it. He'll go on saying it till he talks his man silly, or gets his order. He has an order form in his hand, and as soon as anyone signs it and gives it back to him, that sets another spring in motion, and he puts the order in his pocket, turns round, and walks away. Grand idea, isn't he? Lord bless him, I'll fairly love him. He beamed affectionately at the monster. What about stairs? said Dodge. No stairs in the bush, said the inventor, blowing a speck of dust off his apparition. All ground floor houses. Anyway, if there were stairs, we could carry him up and let him fall down afterwards, or get flung down like any other canvasser. Ha! Let's see him walk, said Dodge. The figure walked all right, stiff and erect. Now let's hear him yabber. The genius touched a spring, and instantly, in a queer tin whistly voice, he began to sing Little Annie Rooney. Good, said Dodge. He'll do. We'll give you a price. Leave him here tonight and come in tomorrow. We'll send you off to the back country with him. Nine Mile would be a good place to start in. Have a cigar. Mr. Dodge, much elated, sucked at his pipe and blew through his nose a cloud of nearly solid smoke through which the genius sidled out. They could hear him sneezing and choking all the way down the stairs. Nine Mile is a quiet little place, sleepy beyond description. When the mosquitoes in that town settle on anyone, they usually go to sleep and forget to bite him. The climate is so hot that the very grasshoppers crawl into the hotel parlours out of the sun, climb up the window curtains, and then go to sleep. The riot act never had to be read in Nine Mile. The only thing that can arouse the inhabitants out of their lethargy is the prospect of a drink at somebody else's expense. For these reasons, it had been decided to start the cast-iron canvasser there, and then move him on to more populous and active localities if he proved a success. 
they sent up the genius and one of their men who knew the district well. The genius was to manage the automaton, and the other was to lay out the campaign, choose the victims, and collect the money, geniuses being notoriously unreliable and loose in their cash. They got through a great deal of whisky on the way up, and when they arrived at Nine Mile, were in a cheerful mood and disposed to take risks. Who'll we begin on? said the genius. Ah, oh, hang it all, said the other. Let's make a start with Macpherson. Macpherson was a land agent and the big bug of the place. He was a gigantic Scotsman, six foot four in his socks, and freckled all over with freckles as big as half crowns. His eyebrows would have made decent moustaches for a cavalryman, and his moustaches looked like horns. He was a fighter from the ground up, and had a desperate down on canvases generally, and on Sloper and Dodge's canvases in particular. Sloper and Dodge had published a book called Remarkable Colonials, and Macpherson had written out his own biography for it. He was intensely proud of his pedigree and his relations, and in his narrative made out that he was descended from the original Hessian who swam round Noah's Ark with his title deeds in his mouth. He showed how his people had fought under Alexander the Great and Timor, and had come over to Scotland some centuries before William the Conqueror landed in England. He proved that he was related in a general way to one emperor, fifteen kings, twenty-five dukes, and earls, and lords, and viscounts innumerable. And then, after all, the editor of Remarkable Colonials managed to mix him up with some other fellow, some low-bred Irish Macpherson, born in Dublin of poor but honest parents. It was a terrible outrage. Macpherson became president of the Western District Branch of the Remarkable Colonials Defence League, a fierce and homicidal association got up to resist, legally and otherwise, paying for the book. He had further sworn by all that he held sacred that every canvasser who came to harry him in future should die, and had put up a notice on his office door. Canvassers come in at their own risk. He had a dog of what he called the Hold'em breed, who could tell a canvasser by his walk, and would go for him on sight. The reader will understand, therefore, that, when the genius and his mate proposed to start on Macpherson, they were laying out a capacious contract for the cast-iron canvasser, and could only have been inspired by a morbid craving for excitement, aided by the influence of back-block whisky. The inventor wound the figure up in the back parlour of the pub. There were a frightful lot of screws to tighten before the thing would work, but at last he said it was ready, and they shambled off down the street, the figure marching stiffly between them. It had a book tucked under its arm and an order form in its hand. When they arrived opposite Macpherson's office, the genius started the phonograph working, pointed the figure straight at Macpherson's door, and set it going. Then the two conspirators waited, like Guy Fawkes in his cellar. The automaton marched across the road, and in at the open door, talking to itself loudly in a hoarse, unnatural voice. Macpherson was writing at his table, and looked up. The figure walked bang through a small collection of flower pots, sent a chair flying, tramped heavily in the spittoon, and then brought up against the table with a loud crash and stood still. It was talking all the time. I have here, it said, a most valuable work, an atlas of Australia, which I desire to submit to your notice. The large and increasing demand of bush residents for time payments works has induced the publishers of this. 
My God, said McPherson. It's a canvasser. Here, Tom Sayers, Tom Sayers. And he whistled and called for his dog. No, he said. Will you go out of this office quietly, or will you be thrown out? It's for yourself to decide, but you've only got while a duck wags his tail to decide in. What shall it be? Works of modern ages, said the canvasser. Every person subscribing to this invaluable work will receive, in addition, a flat iron, a railway pass for a year, and a pocket compass. If you will please sign this order. Just here, Tom Sayers came tearing through the office, and, without waiting for orders, hitched straight onto the canvasser's calf. To McPherson's amazement, the piece came clear away, and Tom Sayers rolled about on the floor with his mouth full of a sticky substance which seemed to surprise him badly. The long Scotsman paused a while before this mystery, but at last he fancied he got the solution. Got a cock leg, have you? said he. Well, let's see if your ribs are cork too. And he struck the canvasser an awful blow on the fifth button of the waistcoat. Quicker than lightning came that terrific right-hand cross-counter. Macpherson never even knew what happened to him. The canvasser's right hand, which had been adjusted by his inventor for a high blow, had landed on the butt of Macpherson's ear and dropped him like a fowl. The gasping, terrified bulldog fled the scene, and the canvasser stood over his fallen foe, still intoning the virtues of his publication. He had come there merely as a friend, he said, to give the inhabitants of Nine Mile a chance to buy a book which had recently earned the approval of King O'Malley and His Excellency the Governor-General. The genius and his mate watched this extraordinary drama through the window. The stimulant habitually consumed by the Nine Milers had induced in them a state of superlative Dutch courage, and they looked upon the whole affair as a wildly hilarious joke. "'By gad, he's done him!' said the genius, as Macpherson went down. "'Done him in one hit. If he don't pay as a canvasser, I'll take him to town and back him to fight Les Darcy. Look out for yourself, don't you handle him?' he continued as the other approached the figure. "'Leave him to me. As like as not, if you go fooling about him, he'll give you a clout that'll paralyse you.' So saying, he guided the automaton out of the office and into the street and walked straight into a policeman. By a common impulse, the genius and his mate ran rapidly away in different directions, leaving the figure alone with the officer. He was a fully ordained sergeant, by name Aloysius O'Grady, a squat, rosy little Irishman. He hated violent arrests and all that sort of thing, and had a faculty of persuading drunks and disorderlies and other fractious persons to go quietly along with him that was little short of marvellous. Excited revellers who were being carried by their mates struggling violently would break away to prance gaily along to the lock-up with the sergeant. Obstinate drunks who had done nothing but lie on the ground and kick their feet in the air would get up like birds, serpent-charmed, to go with him to Durance Vile. As soon as he saw the canvasser and noted his fixed unearthly stare and listened to his hoarse unnatural voice, the sergeant knew what was the matter. It was a man in the horrors, a common enough spectacle at Nine Mile. He resolved to decoy him into the lock-up and accosted him in a friendly, free and easy way. Good idea, he said. Most magnificent volume ever produced, jeweled in fourteen holes, working on a ruby roller and in a glass case, said the book canvasser. 
the likenesses of the historical personages are so natural that the book must not be left open on the table, or the mosquitoes will ruin it by stinging the portraits. It then dawned on the sergeant that this was no mere case of the horrors. He was dealing with a book canvasser. Ah, sure, he said. What's the use of trying to sell books at all at all? Folks does be pelting them out into the street, and the nanny goats lives on them these times. I send the children out to pick em up, and we have em at me place in barrow loads. Come along with me now, and I'll make you nice and comfortable for the night. And he laid his hand on the outstretched palm of the figure. It was a fatal mistake. He had set in motion the machinery which operated the figure's left arm, and it moved that limb in towards its body, and hugged the sergeant to its breast with a vice-like grip. Then it started in a faltering and uneven but dogged way to walk towards the river. Immortal saints! gasped the sergeant. He's squeezing the living breath out of me. Lave go like a decent soul now, lave go. And oh, for the love of God, don't be speaking into me ear that way. For the figure's mouth was pressed tight against the sergeant's ear, and its awful voice went through and through the little man's head as it held forth about the volume. The sergeant struggled violently, and by doing so set some more springs in motion, and the figure's right arm made terrific swipes in the air. A following of boys and loafers had collected by this time. Blimey how he does lash out, was the remark they made. But they didn't interfere, notwithstanding the sergeant's frantic appeals, and things were going hard for him when his subordinate, Constable Dooley, appeared on the scene. Dooley, better known as the Wombat because of his sleepy disposition, was a man of great strength. He had originally been quartered at Sydney, and had fought many bitter battles with the notorious pushers of Bondi, Surrey Hills, and the Rocks. After that, duty at Nine Mile was child's play, and he never ran in fewer than two drunks at a time. It was beneath his dignity to be seen capturing a solitary inebriate. If they wouldn't come with him any other way, he would take them by the ankles and drag them after him. When the wombat saw the sergeant in the grip of an inebriate, he bore down on the fray full of fight. I'll soon make him leave go, sergeant, he said, and caught hold of the figure's right arm to put on the police twist. Unfortunately, at that exact moment, the sergeant touched one of the springs in the creature's breast. With the suddenness and severity of a horse kick, it lashed out with its right hand, catching the redoubtable Dooley a thud on the jaw, and sending him to grass as if he'd been shot. For a few minutes he lay as only the dead men lie. Then he got up, bit by bit, wandered off home to the police barracks, and mentioned casually to his wife that John L. Sullivan had come to town and had taken the sergeant away to drown him. After which, having given orders that anybody who called was to be told that he'd gone fifteen miles out of town to serve a summons on a man for not registering a dog, he locked himself up in a cell for the rest of the day. Meanwhile, the cast-iron canvasser, still holding the sergeant tightly clutched to its breast, was marching straight towards the river. Something had disorganised its vocal arrangements, and it was now positively shrieking in the sergeant's ear, and as it yelled, the little man yelled still louder. I don't want your accursed book. Leave go of me, I say. He beat with his fists on its face, and kicked its shins without avail. A short staggering rush, a wild shriek from the officer, 
and they both toppled over the steep bank and went south into the depths of Nine Mile Creek. That was the end of the matter. The genius and his mate returned to town hurriedly and lay low, expecting to be indicted for murder. Constable Dooley drew up a report for the chief of police, which contained so many strange statements that the police department concluded the sergeant must have got drunk and drowned himself, and that Dooley saw him do it, but he was too drunk to pull him out. Anyone unacquainted with Nine Mile might expect that a report of the occurrence might have reached the Sydney papers. As a matter of fact, the storekeeper did think of writing one, but decided that it was too much trouble. There was some idea of asking the government to fish the two bodies out of the river, but about that time an agitation was started in Nine Mile to have the federal capital located there, and nothing else mattered. The genius discovered a pub in Sydney that kept the Nine Mile brand of whisky and drank himself to death. The wombat became a sub-inspector of police. Sloper entered the Christian ministry. Dodge was elected to the federal parliament, and a vague tradition about a bloke who came up here in the horrors and drowned poor old O'Grady is the only memory that remains of that wonderful creation, the Cast Iron Canvasser. End of the Cast Iron Canvasser by A. B. Banjo Patterson. <laughs>